This is Robin Amlo of IBS Intelligence. I'm joined by Murray Gardner, the Managing Director of Blue Code Africa. We're talking about digital payments in Africa. Murray, what's the significance of adopting digital payments for the African continent? Well, I think that digital payments are essential. I see them as a real gateway to higher quality and valuable financial services. And what we've done over the last couple of decades with payments and with fintech and financial inclusion has by default really centered on the consumer. So if you look at the most widely known example being M-Pesa in Kenya, it's a consumer-centric product. And then if you look at all the measures of financial inclusion, the measure of financial inclusion relates to having a transactional account. And a transactional account, a virtual account with an M&O, is considered to be active if you've had a single transaction in 90 days. And that makes you included. I think really the definition of financial inclusion is a lot more than that. Having access to a, a relationship with formal finance that can provide you with all of the types of financial services that you need throughout your life and throughout the life cycle. And that's the consumer. But we've gotten pretty good at using technology, data analytics, and, uh, and understanding the consumer as data. But what we haven't done is we haven't understood the productive economy the same way. So the productive economy, if you look at a country like Nigeria or, or Ghana, 65% of GDP comes from the informal sector. And it's opaque. A push payment like a, a P2P payment with, with M-Pesa or um, a QR push payment to a business, it's like receiving cash. That cash can go anywhere. There's no tracking of it. It leaves, it leaves that business opaque and it elevates the risk of engagement for a financial institution. So I think that we really need to pivot and use the technology and intelligence that we've had focused on the consumer and pivot that to the productive economy if we're going to make a significant and meaningful contribution to social and economic development in Africa. You use the phrase that everybody uses when they talk about financial technology in Africa, which is financial inclusion. But actually, you're also saying this is about much more than just financial inclusion. Well, it's a definition of financial inclusion. You know, if you look at the, the effort that has been driven by the World Bank and by the financial sector, there were decades of effort with the nonprofit sector trying to discover ways of, of engaging with the poor and proving that the poor would pay. And we had a Nobel Prize laureate, Mohammed Yunus from Bangladesh. Well and good. The Grameen Bank. Yeah, the Grameen, the Grameen story. It's very difficult to replicate in any meaningful way, but it's a phenomenon. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful experience in, in that part of the world. Africa has a much more heterogeneous dynamic environment. Those kinds of models don't necessarily apply. So the only way to really engage the sector is with a market economy response. And what the experience in financial inclusion or microfinance has done, it's proven that there is a market. And fintech has come in to try and address the, the, the transaction costs associated with that market. So banks have now responded because transactional banking is easy to do. And then microcredit is relatively easy to do. And that's, but that's all consumer-centric business. What no one has been able to really do in any meaningful way is to provide quality financial services to the small artisan, the small farmer, the small trader, those are still outside the formal financial sector. And if we're going to, Africa is going to deliver the next billion people on this planet by 2050. It's a resource-rich continent. The value added 
on those resources that are exported is minimal. So Africa is exporting raw materials and importing everything. And most employment in Africa is, is in the informal economy. It's just opaque. And people just aren't finding a way, a pathway out of poverty. We're not growing that space. So I think that everything that we've learned with transactional banking for consumers needs to pivot to that space. And you can only do that if you have a merchant-centric payment and you're able to provide a service, a payment service, and a reason for those micro-merchants to want to have a digital service. The only reason that they're going to want to nudge out cash is if it has a very strong positive upside that is much more valuable than cash replacement. And that's you know cash flow smoothing, credit, insurance, savings, all the things that we, we need and we take for granted are needed in the informal sector. So how do you get from where we are now to a solution for that being implemented? The card companies, Visa, MasterCard, they have a merchant pull transaction where you have a bank that acquires the business, provides them with the service, the ability to, to receive a payment. And when you present your card at a merchant, you're presenting an authorization for that merchant to pull value from your transaction account, from your bank account. That is a merchant-centric payment. When you have that type of payment, you can attach all sorts of value to it. And the acquiring bank that's providing the service has clear sight of your cash flow. So it tightens and deepens the relationship between the merchant and the acquiring bank. When you have that, you can build out services. The problem is card companies, despite even virtualization, have costs and limitations in how far that can go. And a push payment is opaque. So you can't develop that relationship with a bank with, with a, a cash transaction or a push payment. I think that we really need to look very seriously at digital account rail-based payments in the domestic market for merchant acquiring and developing the relationship with that economy. That's small traders, farmers, artisans, anyone who's got a business and then consumers can provide a, you know, a digital interaction there. Once you have that, you can add value-added services. You have site of the business. You can use data analytics in your back office to interpret the behavior of that business. And then you can de-risk the business and you can provide credit facilities, insurance products, and so forth, and grow the business, which is going to create jobs and income and wealth. And you're lighting up and empowering the informal economy. That's what we need to do. So all that flows from a secure, safe, digital payments platform. It does. And that's why I got excited about what, what we're doing here with BlueCode, because BlueCode is a fully interoperable four-party domestic digital mobile payment with no data involved in the. It's a totally anonymous token. The other thing is data. We have to see the business as data points. We can't physically go there. Ten years ago, the sector would try and you know, use digital field applications where somebody would go out on a bicycle or a motorbike and see the business, take a picture and get a GPS point and you know, that sort of stuff. The transaction costs are extraordinary. You can't do that. We have to see that sector as data points. And then we have to be able to de-risk the engagement. And we have to have a reliable payment and reliable inbound cash flow. Because if you have reliable inbound cash flow from a business, you can collateralize that and leverage that to provide other services. So I think that's very important. But it's also very important that the banks retain the data. So with a digital anonymous transaction, the customer information is only resolved inside the bank. If you put a third party between you and that business, and that third party has access to your customer and merchant information, it will be disintermediated, and that will disrupt financial markets. 
So, you know, I think it's a combination of data security, light, low cost, high value transactions where you can attach other services. So I see it as, as really a, as a gateway to more financial services or better quality financial services for that space. You mentioned one word there that rang a bell in my brain. You talked about it being domestic. What about cross-border payments? Cross-border, certainly. If you have a platform where you have a standard, as we do, if you have the interbank plumbing for the cross-border settlement in place, a Nigerian consumer can pay at a Ghanaian merchant and one of the, you know, the plumbing isn't really in place in West Africa, but a lot of the big Nigerian banks have a pretty big footprint so they can facilitate the interbank. So a cross-border payment is, is entirely doable. Visa and MasterCard are ubiquitous. They're, they're behemoths. They're, they're global. Um, people will be using Visa and MasterCard for the foreseeable future, particularly the high-value you know, consumer who travels around the world. That, that's not going to be easily displaced. But if you speak to a regulator... How can you reasonably say to a regulator, we want you to, over time, replace your cash transactions with a digital transaction from a foreign American corporate that is going to process your transactions offshore? And in the, you know, in the current geopolitical environment, can you imagine if, if your economy was, if you replace cash with a dependency on an American corporation and for political reasons or whatever, there's a, uh, an embargo placed on your country. What, what would you do? So you need to have independence. You need to have a world-class payment that is interoperable, but you need to have the ability to control it in your own market. You have to set your own rules. You can't be driven by a foreign rule book, pay foreign exchange to do domestic transactions. You know, it, it doesn't make sense for somebody who's buying a Coca-Cola from a little shop in a, in a rural area to pay a dollar fee, a dollar-based fee for that cash replacement transaction. That's exactly what offshore legacy schemes will offer you. That dependency creates you know, technological dependencies, which implies systemic risk. So you have to be able to address those issues, but still offer the kind of technology that offers the interoperability and cross-border capability. So that's kind of the space where we're focusing. What we need is we need an African solution that will improve the flow of funds, boost business, economic activity, reduce fraud. How is this going to come about? There are a number of fintech players that are operating in this space. We have exactly that. In fact, what we do is we license locally in local current and, and we do a rev share in local currency. And we even have a trigger event in our licensing agreements that say that if an embargo is brought against your country, we, we release the software to you. It's yours. Uh, so there's no te technological dependency. And we, you know, we operate in those contexts because you have to deal with those high level uh, challenges. But at the same time, it has to be a low cost transaction that doesn't cannibalize a bank's card revenue. So their net interchange fees, revenues, we can disintermediate the whole stack of costs associated with PCI compliance and plastic, but the net revenue to an issuing bank has to be revenue neutral or better, which we can do and still drop the transaction costs significantly and provide all four parties participation to give it an economic drivers. You've got to have the acquirer, the issuer, the consumer, and the merchant all have to get value that significantly exceeds the relative cost of the transaction. And the rules around who gets to play and how they play have to be governed locally, but against a common standard so you can maintain the international interoperability.
Okay, let's wrap up. We have to address the one thing we haven't talked about yet, and that's the pandemic. How has the pandemic impacted your business? How has it impacted take-up? Are we seeing fast, more interest in digital payments because of it, or has that not happened in Africa yet? Oh, Africa is a very chaotic market for payments and fintech. It's exploding with all sorts of innovation, but I would say 90-something percent of it is all another me too consumer push payment for the most part. And then a lot of it is just sort of front ending the legacy card schemes. So it's still, it's either lock into legacy and make an interaction easier, or it's a domestic type of push payment, et cetera. So there's a lot of activity there. And I think a lot of, a lot of fintechs, they, uh, they saw COVID and the, the fear of a tactile experience as something that would drive adoption. I think not. What the COVID pandemic has really exposed is our vulnerabilities, and it has exposed the need to improve the economic foundation. Um, We need to grow the economy. The economic impact of the pandemic, I think, has really heightened awareness of the need to create jobs, to create a stable economy. And that in emerging markets means growing and, and, and lighting up the informal sector. So for us, it's been a, a good story because we're able to speak to that. There's always a new user experience for avoiding biometrics or another clever way to pay. And, and that's all to me, it's very much me too. I think what's much more important than what, what the pandemic has heightened is the vulnerability of emerging markets to international dependencies and the need to grow your local domestic G through empowering the the local informal economy. Murray Gardner, Managing Director of Blue Coat Africa, thank you very much indeed.